welcome to episode 49 of the Tech Done Right podcast, tablet-sized podcast about building better software, careers, companies, and communities. I'm Noel Rappin. Our topic this week is accessibility. As many as 15 to 25% of your site's potential users may have trouble accessing it due to some kind of disability. How can you design your site to allow that content to be available to the widest variety of users? My guest today is Louisa Morales. Louisa is an engineering fellow at the New York City Mayor's Office for Economic Opportunity. We'll talk about what accessibility means, how to design your site to be accessible, and what guidelines you can use to help ensure success. We'll also talk about a very literal form of accessibility, making your site behave in a way that it is accessible to users with limited bandwidth or older devices. We'd also like to hear from you. What issues or successes have you had with accessibility? Let us know at techdoneright.io or on Twitter at tech underscore done underscore right. Before we start the show, a couple of quick messages. TableXI offers training for developer and product teams. If you want me or somebody like me or, you know, me to come to your place of business and run a workshop on testing or JavaScript or legacy code, that is a thing that can happen. If you would like it to happen, and you probably should, email us at workshops at tablexi.com or see a list of our course content at tablexi.com slash workshops. And if you like the show, tell a friend, tell a colleague, tell your social media network. We would appreciate all of that. I appreciate it when people tell me they like the show. Uh, also, you can leave a review on Apple Podcasts, which helps people find the show. And now here is my conversation with Louisa. Louisa, would you like to introduce yourself to everybody? Yeah, gladly. Hi, everyone. I'm Louisa Morales. I am currently a master's student at Pace University in New York City. I'm doing a master's in computer science. And I am also doing a fellowship with the New York City Mayor's Office for Economic Opportunity in New York as well. That's great. And you have come here to talk to us about accessibility. So let's start by defining the subject a little bit. What most people think of as accessibility, how would you define accessibility? What people usually think about as being web accessibility is making the web equally accessible for people with disabilities. And so the idea is that whether you have a vision impairment, a hearing impairment, or a dexterity issue, you can access the web as well as someone who doesn't have those impairments or disabilities. So I feel like I hear about this most often in terms of people who have visual difficulties, but... The other ones are, are also quite important. How large a population are we normally dealing with in terms of like the people who you may be turning away from your website because it's not accessible? It's roughly 15 to 25% of the population on a global level has some form of disability. In the U.S., the Census Bureau from 2012 gathered information and in 2010, there were 56.7 million people in the U.S. alone that had a disability such as vision loss, hearing loss, or mobility impairment. So that actually averages out to one in five Americans. Is that including like red-green colorblindness as a disability? Yes. So it's any type of vision loss ranging from, or like, I guess, vision impairment, which could be like colorblindness all the way up to being legally blind. And of course, in many cases, you're legally required to provide a site that is accessible, at least in the United States. Yes. (laughs) So there is regulation around this. Government websites, educational websites have... I guess are are looked at on more closely, but still there was a report that was some organization went around and took, I believe it was roughly like eight sites from every state to gather 
how many of them were accessible by the terms of the WCAG, which is the Web Content Accessibility Guidelines, which were released in 2008 by W3C. So that's the World Wide Web Consortium. Maybe like 43% of websites weren't actually accessible. And these were all government websites. And the study was done recently, and it's 10 years <laughs> since W3C came out with these guidelines. And the web doesn't really seem to be more accessible to people in the way that it should be, which is really a shame because I feel like the web is this thing that is magical and open to everyone and accessible and you know, kind of tries to even the playing field regardless of your background and the fact that it's inaccessible to so many people is is very shocking. Yeah, I feel like I have always, for my entire career as a web developer, heard that accessibility is a huge issue and that most web developers don't pay any attention to it and that even knowing that most web developers don't pay any attention to it. And I think I'm as guilty of it as anybody. It's not something that I think about on a day-to-day basis. What's the most important thing that a web developer can do tomorrow to start making their sites more accessible? Great question. (laughs) And it's almost a difficult one to answer because if you're going to make your projects more accessible, you need to be aware of what that means. And so I think the first thing to do would probably just to be aware of what web accessibility means and to be aware of whether or not the company that you work with or the companies that you work with um, are taking it into consideration. And so the thing being that it involves different stakeholders, right? So for visual impairments, there are things around like color contrasting. So that's kind of contrast is a white background with black text or a black background with white text on it, just because it's it's the easiest for for everyone to kind of see uh, what's happening on the page. Other things are, you know, like using image tags, um, using image elements, but including the alt attributes into them. A lot of people will, (laughs) and I've seen this done on projects that I've worked on where the alt attributes will be left empty. And sometimes that's done because the image is purely for presentation purposes. But if you're someone with a visual impairment who is using a screen reader, that image is going to still come up and be read by the screen reader, but you're not going to have any context for it. So it's it's essentially just having like empty box on a website that is nothing for you and provides no value. And so the alt attributes are really important because they can add context around what is being displayed in the image. Also, if it is for presentation purposes, there is an ARIA label that you can use. And so it's the role attribute. And so that you can set it to presentation. And then you can also set ARIA hidden to true which will have that image not be picked up by a screen reader. So, okay, you mentioned ARIA, but tell me a little bit about what ARIA is and how I should be using it in my websites. Cool. So ARIA labels are, like, I guess, HTML. I'm not really sure how to phrase it, but it could be like syntactic sugar or like attributes that you can add on top of your elements to provide extra context for screen readers. They're really great, but they are dangerous if you don't know what you're doing (laughs) when you're using them. Okay, help me know what I'm doing when I'm using them. So there's data attributes. They all start like aria-something, right? Yes. 
What kinds of things do ARIA tags help screen readers do? Cool. So they help add context to what is happening on the page. So I have some examples that I wanted to share. So the one that I was talking about earlier is when you add ARIA hidden um, equal true and role equal presentation. You can add these onto an image element and Essentially, what it does is that it makes it so that a screen reader doesn't pick it up. And you can also then use the alt um, attribute and set it to empty just because it's purely a presentation image. It doesn't add additional value to the website or any additional context. So it doesn't need to be picked up by a screen reader. Ideally, if you are using images, <laughs> you, you want them to provide some type of value. But at times there's like the large image on a blog post that doesn't really do anything for you other than kind of like being pretty. <laughs> so that is a good example of when you would use Aria Hidden True and the role presentation. Another thing that can be full in this case is if you're ideally, you should be using the label element and that will allow you to get the native, the native built-in functionality for that, which is the ideal case. You want it to have a custom control setup, you wanted to do, say, radio group, then you would have div role equals radio group, and then aria labeled by equals, uh, for the purposes of this, label. And then you would have a span element with the ID label, and then that would mimic the interaction or kind of like DOM setup that you would get from a label element, which would then have like its own placeholder and other contacts kind of added to that. A lot of times the code of the web page is more or less in the same order that a screen reader would deal with it, but sometimes it's not. You have elements that pop in at different places. You know, CSS can have things move across the page. Is there a mechanism to make sure that the screen reader knows what order to deal with elements on the page? Or is it something yes and no? Is there something I just need to be really careful of when I design them? Yeah. So you just actually just hit it kind of on the nail. So basically the screen reader will read the website the way that the DOM is set up for it. So the way that you have set up your HTML elements, all of that, that is what the screen reader is going to spit back out. There are ways to remove um, elements from the screen reader so that it doesn't register them. But you do have to be careful. Something that is really tricky are the elements that are on the DOM but aren't visually there, I suppose, like if, if you're a person navigating the website, you wouldn't see it automatically. But if you're somebody navigating the website through a screen reader, it will show. The way that it's kind of described on uh, W3C is it's considered off-screen content. So a way to draw attention to new content, whether it's like club or an error message or something like that, is to use ARIA Live. And that has two states that I'm aware of. Uh, so it's polite and then urgent. And then also the ARIA described by attributes. And so that it will make those states active for the screen reader to then alert the user about. Other ways to go about doing this is not all elements, if you're using a keyboard, so keyboard accessibility and screen reader accessibility share have commonality when you're using them. And so something to do with off-screen elements, if you want to hide content from the screen reader because they are off-screen elements and so you don't want to draw attention to them until they should be in focus on the screen, use aria hidden equals true. And then aria hidden 
doesn't actually prevent the keyboard from focusing on the element. So you would have to then also add a tab index equals negative one to make sure that it's actually removed from screen reader flow and from keyboard flow. And then to add elements into the keyboard flow, do tab index equals zero. The thing with tab index zero is that it'll bring elements into the page as soon as kind of like the DOM is loaded. So you want to be really careful about using that. And so there are things that aren't like natively supported as having a tab index. So if you're like clicking through a site on using your keyboard, like divs and spans aren't registered through the tab. It's usually things like links that have a tab index. And so when you like tab through a website, those are the elements that would get registered and displayed for you. This reminds me a little bit of internationalization, a couple of senses, one of which is that it's much easier to do if you bake it in at the beginning of a project than it is to try and add to a project that's in progress. And secondly, I think because I suspect tooling to do it is not as good necessarily as we might all want it to be. Am I right about that? Is it a lot easier to build in accessibility at the beginning of a project? I guess nobody ever says, leave that important thing until the middle of a project. The way that I kind of see it is that it's similar to this whole kind of mobile first mindset that has been going around. So it should be like mobile first and accessibility first. The great thing about building your projects with accessibility in mind is that I believe makes you a better developer along the way, makes you more empathetic as well. And it also makes it a better experience for all your users. And so something else that is important in terms of like semantic HTML is creating landmarks. So there are elements like section and aside and main and nav. And these, I think, at least in my experience, haven't been used as much as I believe they should be. And so for a screen reader or when you're using your keyboard, these landmark elements are super important because they allow you to kind of skip through and to get a really high level idea of what's on that page. And so it allows you're on a content heavy website. These landmark elements allow you to kind of to navigate to where you want to go. And I think that's really important because... It, it just makes the experience a lot easier. And then as a developer, the fact that you're thinking about, you know, like what should go into the main element? What content is the most important? What belongs in there? And then also you know, like what's in the side and, and things like this. It just makes you think more about how you're building the things that you're building. There's kind of a curb cut effect here that curb cuts were originally put in to help people in wheelchairs, but once they put them in, they discovered those were useful for people in all kinds of circumstances, carrying heavy things, people with strollers. And if you have good markup uh, for the purpose of accessibility, that also helps other navigation tools. It helps the whole reader and Instapapers and things for the world determine what the content is. And it just overall makes the site pleasant experience for everybody, even though uh, some of it is behind there. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Something else is H1 elements. So I partially still consider myself a junior developer. I've, I'm self-taught and I've been programming for slightly over three years. And I've worked at a development agency and then also at a startup. And I cannot tell you how many times I've seen multiple H1 elements on a page and not had of anyone kind of register that as being an issue. 
there are <laughs> uh, heading elements, right, are important because they denote what what to expect from the content that follows uh, the heading element. H1 elements are really important because they are what tells a user, any type of user, what the page is about. It is also what gets picked up by web crawlers. And so it's very, very important that you only have one H1 element on a website. And then you would use like H2, H3, all the way down to H6, depending on what the order of the DOM is. And then you would style on top of that. What I have seen in practice is that developers, I myself have done this in the past because I wasn't aware of what was happening, will use, say, like an H2 element and then within that have another H2 element. But realistically, it should have been an H3 and or have multiple H1 elements on a page. And so it's just it's not good practice. It's not great for someone using a screen reader and it's not great for SEO. Right. So you only have one title on a page. We are sort of all paying for like the not fully thought out decision when HTML was created to have H1s and H2s like sort of be both typography and structure. And ideally you would treat them as structure and deal with the typography in CSS. Yes. Yeah, correct. So you would set in your CSS, you would basically set whatever you want headings to be, and then you would override them based on like what design you have to implement, but the H1 element, there should only ever be one of those on the page. And then there are other rules for using the remaining uh, header elements, but the key here is only one, one H1 element per page. So how would I approach this? If I'm going to approach the design of my page and I'm working with designers, the beginning of a project, we're setting up the layout, like what are some things that I can do at the beginning to make sure that screen readers or her using assisted navigation devices have their workflows taken into it? Yeah, so I think as a bare minimum, just because this is quite a lot to kind of take in. When you're working with a designer and also copy editors, it's really a team team effort here. So when you're working on a project, you're getting started. Things to take into consideration that will have a big impact, I believe, are things around color contrast. And so making sure that the colors that are being used are are different enough where they can be picked up by people with visual impairments. Honestly, a current pain point for myself is the new Chrome browser that was update that was just released. There's a lot of gray, and so it's actually difficult for me. I don't have any visual impairments to see where things are when I'm using Chrome, and it's been extremely, extremely frustrating for me. And so I think making sure that you're p- picking colors that have good contrast, being careful about placing text on top of images, they can be very distracting and it can also be very difficult to see the text on top of images. Be sure that you're using the alt attribute and if it's for purely decorative purposes using like role equals presentation, taking into account the DOM structure. So I know that it's really fun to design <laughs> websites and that that are beautiful, but if there are a lot of moving parts, they can be difficult for somebody, say with like an anxiety disorder or cognitive disability to take in. Along those lines, also having succinct copy is really important. Like basically make your copy readable on a fifth grade level and you will have greater success with getting people to kind of convert and understand what your product or project is about. And then I think those are kind of 
a good start. From there, you can move into the ARIA labels and bringing elements into the keyboard flow. Something else to consider here is to make sure that if you are using, say, a div and styling it as a button, you enable that button for screen read. There is a way to do it. I can't remember it right now, but there is enough documentation online for it to be easily accessible. And so if you are not using buttons for your buttons, those buttons will not be accessible by someone. So you could have a checkout button, but it's actually a div with the class button. And so when you know you have some JavaScript there and when a person clicks on it, it takes them to like the checkout screen. That will not be picked up by a screen reader unless it is specified to, to be something that you want the screen reader to pick up. So I think the lesson there is use the elements that are provided to you by default because they have a lot of functionality that you would otherwise have to implement yourself if you don't use them. I know that there are tools for color contrast and some of like the, the colorblindness issues. Are there tools to help you audit your other accessibility issues? What's the easiest way for me to tell what my website sounds like on a screen reader, for example? Yeah, so great question. There are, so for screen readers, there's JAWS and NVDA for Windows. And so they are screen readers that you can use and access your website and kind of see what it sounds like to a person who would be using the screen reader. On Mac, there's VoiceOver, which is built in for Android, there's TalkBack. And then for Chrome, the browser and the OS, there's Chromevox. Most of these are open source or offer a free free version, free trial for you to test out. For Windows, there's also something called high contrast, which will show you what the website looks like <laughs> and whether it would be visually acceptable for someone to use who, who has a visual impairment. And then there are other tools in terms of just kind of testing what the website looks like on different browsers and how fast it is. So these include like browser stack and I think it's speed page test, I think it's called. And so these are things that you would have to do in terms of like manual testing for automated testing, there's Pali CI, which is a continuous integration centric accessibility testing tool. And so it'll allow you to specify URLs that you want to have tested and it'll spit back things that are broken with it. So one of those would be having an image element without the alt attribute. So you talked about speed there for a second. And I think that's a good way to transition into like another way of thinking about accessibility, which is accessibility, not necessarily based on disability, but sort of based on access. What are some important things that you need to keep in mind when you're talking about accessibility, like literally in terms of access? So great question. Things to consider are that we, definitely myself, thank you as well. Most people who are listening to this podcast are very fortunate in terms of our access to the web. Not everybody has that same access. You know, I can, I can access the web on my laptop, my phone, at home, at school, even on the street, and I don't have to pay for all of it. And that is not the case for a lot of people around the world. There are people who will pay the equivalent of their daily income on just loading up one page. And so for them, it is essential that websites 
load quickly and that they are small. <laughs> and so the idea there is just kind of making your projects and products accessible regardless of your like internet connection or your financial status. And so what are some of the specific things that you need to think about there? Is it just a, is it a question of like taking all the fancy stuff out of your website or is there a better way to handle it? So there are a few ways. <laughs> so one of it is considering load times. So a quick win there would be to place your scripts at the bottom of your body element. And so that way you won't block the page from loading while it's gathering JavaScript located in files or potentially through a CDN or something like that. On that note, if you can use a CDN to load some of your, say like a style sheet or something like that, it can also be helpful because it'll make it faster for a user to be able to get that content onto their device. And so for anyone who's not aware, a CDN is a content delivery network. And then also images are a huge thing here. If you can provide an image that has a smaller file size when it on mobile versus desktop, that makes a, a huge difference. It'll also make the site just load faster. And then other things to consider around that is how ads are managed. So ads can be a huge headache. Unfortunately, there isn't too much that can be done to kind of like circumvent them because they do tend to be third parties. And so thinking about your users, you could, could check geographically where they are based on the IP address or check what type of network connection they're on. And so say if they're on a 2G or 3G network, you could disable ads for them. Something else to consider is offline capability. The idea here being that not everyone has access to a stable internet connection. And so if you can make the site, I think this also comes down to kind of how browsers work on mobile, but sometimes you'll go back to a site and it'll automatically refresh, which means that basically just downloading everything if it hasn't cached it. And that can be very costly for someone who is trying to get, you know, maybe if it's like a news source and they're they're trying to access this information for like a school project, it can be very costly for them if that auto reload happens. And so being able to make your, your site not do that would be really helpful and it can actually make the difference in someone's life on, on a monetary level. So Progressive Web Ads is a project out of Google. And it basically allows you to add some of the bonuses that you get from having a native application, but apply that to your web app or your website. And so part of that includes the capability for offline push notifications, and then some like hardware access as well. And then there's also AMP, which is accelerated mobile pages, which is also a project out of Google. It's open source and AMP pages just load very quickly, um, partly because they don't support JavaScript. Uh, so they do, but they support asynchronous JavaScript, but it's also custom AMP elements. So you're limited in the JavaScript that you can use on, on the sites. I think CNN either always or in times of heavy load has a separate URL that's like slash fast or something like that that is the stripped down version of the site that's mostly text and gives people like me warm feelings of nostalgia for the late 90s. Yeah, you, you mentioned JavaScript. Does this kind of accessibility kind of preclude using single page apps or big JavaScript frameworks or is it just something that you need to be like very careful about? if you're going to try and do that. Yeah, so it's not one or the other. There are people who have, I forget what the name of the application is, but kind of like Kayak. But basically what they did is that they built 
certain landing pages using AMP. And then from AMP, they take the user over to their progressive web app. And there's a lot of data kind of flowing through there, but they manage to do it in a way where how heavy, like how much memory the whole web application takes is is very uh, low. And it's a very fast experience. So you can do this. I think that it is harder to do it retrospectively. So if you already have an application and you want to convert it into a progressive web app, that is a harder thing to do because it'll probably take some reworking. But if you start off with accessibility in mind, as we've mentioned before, you're going to be in a better place to implement these new technologies and just to make your project more accessible overall. Uh, So yeah, you don't have to like stop using JavaScript or anything like that. You just have to be aware of of what's going on. Something that I I feel like kind of slips through the cracks is like memory leaks, which can be extremely costly. Uh, So even just having a script or something that like checks what's going on like in the background or something like that would be helpful. Uh, You don't want to force people to download more stuff because they're just using your site like that's horrible and that's pretty much it you can you can have both you can have a heavily used application and and have it be accessible so i know that there's a tool here because i know that the google chrome developer tools lets you there's a setting to like throttle your bandwidth to simulate uh is there anything else like that or do the browsers have similar tools to have you simulate what the site looks like under conditions of not a lot of bandwidth I am not sure. I've actually only ever used the one offered by Chrome. I would assume Firefox does. And on that note, probably Edge, but I'm not not sure about that. Um, Another fun thing to do is to disable JavaScript (laughs) and load your site up and see if it's even, if it even loads. I've heard people like do this and they literally just get a blank screen. Yeah, well, if you're doing like a single page app or something that's very heavily in a framework, then yeah, you're you're making the bold claim that JavaScript's required for this. Yeah, but you can you can easily like create a page or something, right? That says like if if JavaScript is disabled, like show this message, plain text saying, "Hey, please enable JavaScript," so that you can see our site. <laughs> I feel like there was a period of time where it was kind of a point of pride for a certain personality type to like proclaim that they turned JavaScript off sort of publicly and the sites were somewhat more solicitous about saying, hey, you need JavaScript to get the full experience here. And then once uh, single page apps became a big thing and we just decided to assume that everybody was going to have JavaScript all the time on all the time, mm-hmm. uh, that sites stopped, more or less stopped sort of being solicitous of the non-JavaScript experience. Oh, Wow. Oh, I had not heard about this. Very interesting. <laughs> so with single page apps, you run into this this moment where you want to, you have like a link, but you're not actually taking a user to a new page. You're just like re-rendering whatever uh, component you want to have displayed. And so there is a way to do this. And so to actually kind of like generate a URL that then to be for the user to then be able to kind of like click back if they want to. So a way to do this is that you could use like history.pushState and then set the path for what like say like bar.html. And so you would then have it display this in the URL bar, but it won't actually cause the browser to load 
that HTML document um, and it won't even check if it exists. It'll just display it in the URL bar. Uh, so it's a great way to kind of show people that there has been a state change, but not actually changing the way the structure of your application. And then to go back, you would do location.pathname if the user uh, selected to go back. Uh, and so you could just take them back to the state that they were previously in. But at least in this way, if you know, someone wants to go back to the page that they were on, um, you can set it in your route so that the user is taken back to like that state, which is huge if you're someone kind of navigating the website. Um, you click out and you want to go back and you don't really know kind of like what's going on. This kind of makes it feel more like a, a typical site would do um, and not in a single page app. Is there anything else that, that people should know about accessibility before we end the show? Yeah. Accessibility is for everyone. And some of the reasons that you should care <laughs> is that if you build with accessibility in mind, you're going to capture most likely the 15 to 25% of the population that has a disability on a global scale. If you don't think about accessibility, you could get sued. If you work at an agency or own an agency, uh, your clients may ask for it, uh, especially if there are organizations that need to build sites that are accessible. I believe that companies will start looking for developers who have accessibility in mind in the future. Uh, the Financial Times did, I believe it was about two years ago that they underwent this, but they did a huge overhaul to make their site more accessible. And if you look at some of their job listings now, they mention, I quote, a love of the web, an interest in performance and dedication to accessibility. And they're nice to have. So it, it can make the difference between getting a job or not. And so yeah, just build with accessibility in mind, even if, if it isn't something that is currently happening at your organization, talk to a few people and see um, if you can get buy in. And if that doesn't work, um, which unfortunately, is a thing that could happen. Like read up on it, make yourself aware of what's going on. And if you become passionate about it, share it with other people. And, you know, like enable the screen reader on your computer and, and see what it's like to navigate a site that you love through it. Great. Thank you for being on the show. Lisa, where can people reach you if they want to know more about accessibility and continue this conversation? Probably Twitter, <laughs> uh, which would be Louisa Marieth M. I use my middle name uh, in everything because there's a pretty well-known pianist named Louisa Morales. So <laughs> did that for SEO purposes. <laughs> <laughs> great. Well, thank you so much for being on the show and, and giving some great accessibility tips. Uh, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. I hope people find it helpful. Tech Done Right is a production of TableXI and is hosted by me, Noel Rappin. I'm at Noel Rapp on Twitter, and TableXI is at TableXI. The podcast is edited by Mandy Moore. You can reach her on Twitter at the Ruby Rep. Tech Done Right can be found at TechDoneRight.io or downloaded wherever you get your podcasts. You can send us feedback or ideas on Twitter at tech underscore done underscore right. TableXI is a UX design and software development company in Chicago with a 15-year history of building websites, mobile applications, and custom digital experiences for everyone from startups to storied brands. Find us at TableXI.com where you can more, learn more about working with us or working for us. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks with the next episode of Tech Done Right. Tech Done Right.